you, thank you, thank you. Finally, it's infrastructure week. Much, much more difficult situation for us. The China threat grows. It looks very, very poor for our constitutional system and its and its construct. And one dire outlook if Trump wins in 2024. I'm Paul Brandish. You're listening to West Wing Reports. It's Friday, November 19th. The last time there was an infrastructure bill on this scale, Dwight Eisenhower was president. It was June 1956, to be exact, when he signed the Interstate and Defense Highways Act, a huge bill to build roads from coast to coast and Canada to Mexico. Two-thirds of a century ago. So Monday's signing of an infrastructure bill by President Biden, more than a trillion dollars, is a big deal. This law makes us the most significant investment in roads and bridges in the past 70 years. It makes the most significant investment in passenger rail in the past 50 years and in public transit ever. So what what that means is you're going to be safer and you're going to get there faster. And we're going to have a whole hell of a lot pollution, less pollution in the air. The bipartisan law will modernize our ports, our airports, our freight rail to make it easier for companies to get goods to market reduce supply chain bottlenecks, as we've experienced now, and lower cost for you and your family. The law also builds on our resilience so that the next storm, superstorm, drought, wildfire, hurricane can be dealt with. Last year alone, the United States, as a consequence of these kind of extreme weather events, lost $99 billion in the United States alone in damage. And this. If you live in one of the 10 million homes or you're a child who attends one of the 400,000 schools or child care centers that still has lead pipes in them. You face a clear and present danger to your child's health and your health now. This law is going to start to replace 100% of the nation's lead pipes and service lines. So every American, every child can turn on the faucet and drink clean water. So I'm a history guy, and here's a history lesson for you. The last time Congress approved a major renewal of federal highway and other transportation programs, the votes were 359 to 65 in the House and 83 to 16 in the Senate, big majorities of both parties. But now roads, bridges, clean water, and all the rest seem controversial 206 Republicans voted against these things. Just 13 Republicans voted for them. Their reward for doing so, vicious attacks from former President Trump and accusations of being traitors. One Republican who voted for clean water and voted for better roads and bridges says he got a death threat. The congressman who got that threat, Michigan's Fred Upton, says, quote, this madness has to stop. I'll have more on former President Trump and what 2024 could hold in a few minutes. Question, what if you had a colleague at work who you couldn't stand and your hatred and contempt was such that you felt compelled to make an animated video showing you murdering that colleague? 
Well, that's what Arizona Congressman Paul Gosar did. He's a Republican, and his video depicts the murder of a Democratic lawmaker, New York's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The video also depicted a physical attack on President Biden. Democrats who hold a thin majority in the House voted to censure Gosar. The first time that's happened in more than a decade. What does censure mean? It means Gosar will be stripped of his committee assignments. Republicans are outraged over this. They call this a free speech issue and say it's just a distraction. Here's House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. For Democrats, this vote isn't about a video. It's about control. That's the one and only thing Democrats are interested in. Not condemning violence, not protecting the institution, not decorum or decency, just control. The Democrats want control and they don't care about the consequences. In response, Ocasio-Cortez, the target of the attack, said this. It is a sad day in which a member who leads a political party in the United States of America cannot bring themselves to say that issuing a depiction of murdering a member of Congress is wrong and instead decides to venture off into a tangent about gas prices and inflation. What is so hard? What is so hard about saying that this is wrong? Again, what if you had done this to a colleague at work just because you disagreed with him or her over the issues? It's another example of the breakdown of civility and decency in our Congress, the People's House. It's fair to say that China is now America's biggest rival, economic, technological, military, and more. But a rivalry from China is one thing. What about China being a threat to our security? President Biden and China's leader Xi Jinping met for several hours this week, the presidential equivalent of a Zoom meeting, only fancier, I suppose. I spoke with Elbridge Colby about this. He's the co-founder and principal of the Marathon Initiative, which focuses on preparing the U.S. for an era of sustained great power competition. He's also a former deputy assistant secretary of defense and the author of an important new book. It's called The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. First, give me your take on how this uh, virtual meeting went in your view. Well, I mean, I don't think much came out of it uh, uh, in any meaningful respect. I mean, you know, I, I'm not opposed to diplomacy and, and contact between the leaders. In fact, I think it's important. Um, but I don't think I mean, clearly, the administration was trying to play down expectations. I think that probably the main concern I would have coming out of it is that it may have been more of a win for Xi Jinping internally uh, in the sense that he's just elevated himself to a stature equivalent to Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping. And, you know, Presumably, there must be questions in the Chinese system about the advisability of his confrontational approach towards the United States and pretty much everybody else. And this kind of summit sort of probably strengthens his hand internally. Um, but, you know, other than that, I don't think it's I don't think it's particularly consequential one way or the other from what I can tell. 
You've said that the U.S. seems to be downplaying the possibility of a war. China, of course, has been quite clear about uh, its intentions with Taiwan. Uh, It wants it to combine with China. It said it has prepared to use force if necessary. It's building a military around the possibility of that, practicing amphibious landings and on and on and on. Uh, Are we downplaying that threat? Well, I think the administration is uh, certainly in its public messaging is not adequately uh, conveying how serious uh, the military challenge in particular from China and and the possibility of war is and how urgent it is. Now, what they're saying behind closed doors, I don't know. I'm not privy to that. But, you know, especially in democracy, there's only so far you can you can separate those two things. And the administration is talking a lot about China. And I give them credit for that, for sure in a sort of strategic competition sense, but it's very long-term oriented. It's very kind of indirect and sort of a sense of a societal competition. I mean, you know, they, for instance, trumpeted the Build Back Better kind of, or the the infrastructure bill as sort of relevant to the competition with China. And this is kind of the frame that they're putting it in is this like sort of, how is the American economy doing? How are we dealing with the contemporary problems? And when the president's spoken about it, he tends to talk about, you know, you need to show that the American model and the democratic model are superior to China. And that, you know, there's something to that, but there's a distinct downplaying of the, I think, the reality that China's building a military specifically to take on and defeat the United States, first vis-a-vis Taiwan, potentially beyond, quite, quite realistically, potentially beyond, and that this is a real issue in this decade. And the administration's actions are also not supporting that. I mean, every... Department and agency, I believe the U.S. government received an increase in funding in the administration's budget submission, except for the Department of Defense and I believe the Department of Homeland Security, you know, and they made a number of cuts to existing weapon systems, which in theory is a good thing because we need to modernize. But that implies that we will be able to kind of not worry about the coming years. And that's not a reasonable assessment. I'm all for modernization, but we can't. we're, We're now at a point where we are within the window of vulnerability to a Chinese attack. And at this point, from what defense professionals, including serving military officers, are indicating we're, pro- we're on a trajectory to lose. So if that's really what they think, that's a grave mistake. And if they're not preparing the American people and the American political system for such a confrontation, that's also a tremendous mistake. Yeah, I've read that. Uh, and tell me what you think, Bridge. I've read that uh, some of these war games that you know, the Pentagon is always uh, you know, running these uh, computer simulations and so forth, and uh, they are not encouraging. Uh, what do you know about that? Well, I know what they've said. I mean, people like General uh, Clint Hynote, uh, who's a senior officer in the Air Force, has has publicly stated, uh, as has David Ackmanic of the Grand Corporation, that um, we routinely get our hats handed to us in a kind of a Taiwan scenario, uh, vis-a-vis the the People's Liberation Army. And I would I would stress that that Taiwan is 100 miles off the coast of China. Correct. The island of Luzon, the main island in the Philippines, is 100 miles off the coast of of Taiwan. Uh, South Korea is about 100 miles off the coast of China, roughly, maybe a little bit more. So, you know, a lot of the advantages that would accrue to, to China vis-a-vis Taiwan would also obtain in with respect to our other allies in the region. I mean, you know, yes, the Pacific is huge, but almost all of the, you know, important and, and wealthier countries or economically vibrant countries are on the Western side and clustered along the Asian coast. So it doesn't matter if we would win, you know, but if we're if we're thinking about fighting the Battle of Midway again, we've already kind of lost. The wargaming also shows that we know how to win, but we are not currently programming, uh, to use the technical term, we're not currently programming the force to win. So this is what's very frustrating. 
is that we know how to win. It's well within our resources. It probably involved considerably south of $100 billion worth of the existing defense budget to, to transition to a force that would be much more effective. But we're not doing it. Do you think Americans understand this? Are they aware of it? Or are they just complacent? Do you get this sense that, uh, you know, they just think, well, we're number one, we've always been number one and that kind of thing. And they're not really, you know, focusing on this. In other words, you know, we're setting ourselves up for, and you've hinted of this bridge, some sort of surprise where, you know, we get into some kind of a conflict. And uh, I think you said we get our hat uh, handed to us. Well, I actually don't really I don't blame the American people so much. I mean, I, you know, actually, the American people seem to have a pretty strong sense that China is a challenge. In fact, I think that people out in the broader country seem to have a more kind of finger feel for the problem, the fundamental problem that China poses to the United States than people in the blob, you know, within the beltway in Washington do, because mm. in a sense, they've felt deindustrialization and a lot of the, the, the sort of direct consequences of, of China's rise and what it's meant for us and how they've taken advantage of us in so many respects, you know, which in some sense, as President Trump put it, it's more our fault than it is China's. But I think the, the problem is the Taiwan issue. I don't, you know, support for defending Taiwan appears a, a polls such as the Chicago Council's poll. Uh, the Reagan Institute has also done a poll suggests that support for Taiwan is, is rising. I tend to worry that that might be a little bit superficial because of the, the costs and the risks. I don't feel that people fully appreciate it. What's dangerous is that, you know, I mean, to paraphrase Trotsky said, you know, you may not be interested in the revolution, but the revolution may be interested in you. Well, I mean, we may not be interested in a war over Taiwan, but the consequences of a war over Taiwan would be very, very grave for our interests in, in a way that's much more immediate than people realize. I think people tend to think, oh, Taiwan, it's distant. Eh, maybe it's kind of part of China. And, you know, at the end of the day, we'll have plenty of time to get our house in order. And that's that, it's that last part that's really not true. So, you know, when we think back to Pearl Harbor and how the United States responded, well, first of all, it would have been better to have deterred a war with Japan and, and Germany. But also, it's important to remember that, you know, in December 1941, even though we lost the, much of the Pacific fleet, um, the United States was by far the industrial superpower of the time, and including the, the shipbuilding superpower. Well, that is actually China now. And you know, Japan was about one-tenth the economic size of the United States at the time. China is equivalent in size. So it's a much, much more difficult uh, situation for us. And what's very frustrating to me and what I, I blame the political establishment, defense establishment, more than the American people who you know, have more immediate problems and, and concerns, it's the job of the defense establishment to recognize this and to get ahead of the problem in a way that presents the American people with a better option to serve their interests. And that is, you know, we have manifestly failed to do, right? And the job of the, you know, to the point about we know how to solve this problem. Well, it's the job of the defense establishment that we all pay over 3% of our income to support to not force us into a terrible choice over Taiwan, for instance, right? Which is in the central theater of, of our interests. And that's what that's essentially what our political system is doing is it's going to give China an opportunity to start a war in a way that they may very well quickly and decisively win. That's going to put us in a really bad position. It's like, well, wait a minute, we're paying almost eight hundred billion dollars a year. And this is what we get. I mean, this is ridiculous. You know, this is it's the job of the defense and political establishment to do better than this. At least you could say before 1941, you could say the American people did not want a standing military establishment. We didn't have one. You know, that there was the isolationist tradition and so forth. Well, that's not true anymore. We have a huge military and security establishment, and yet we're failing to properly prepare for the problem. You got to wonder, too, past wars, I mean, the last uh, 20 years, 
As you know, we fought uh, simultaneously two of the longest wars in our history, Afghanistan and Iraq. Neither of those uh, went particularly well. Uh, these two countries are just, uh, you know, just pinpricks compared to China. I wonder if we would even have the stomach for a conflict with a, a country that size uh, anyway. Well, I mean, I would give, again, I would have a bit more confidence in the American people in the sense that they, I think they've intuited for a long time that those wars were essentially peripheral in, in terms of our interests. And I, I say that with the greatest respect for those who served and sacrificed there and their families. But I mean, as you point out, I mean, Afghanistan is, I don't know, one of the most impoverished countries in the world. And Iraq is just not that important in the grand scheme of things. I mean, we're talking, I mean, I, I like the planetary uh, analogy. I mean, China's like Jupiter in the solar system and Afghanistan and Iraq are like asteroids. You know, they're not even in the, they're not even planets. Right. And what really uh, makes me frankly very angry uh, is that I feel that the American people's willingness to sacrifice and resolve, particularly the, the relatively narrow portion of the population that does serve in the military and, and you know, the, the overseas portions of our, of our government and put themselves at risk, that's been spent on these conflicts that were really not that important. Yep. What I do think is that the American people will intu- do, and I think will intuitively grasp the fundamentally different order of magnitude that it will mean for our interests if we lose a war to China and allow China to dominate Asia. Colby sums up by saying that the most pressing risk is that China may see an advantage in starting a war and that the U.S. must convince China that it will not gain from being the aggressor. My thanks to Elbridge Colby and again the book The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Other news this week, we all know that the price of essentials like gasoline and food are up sharply from a year ago. The pandemic and global supply chain continue to cause problems. Inflation is one reason most Americans tell pollsters that the economy's in bad shape. But get this, a new survey from Mass Mutual, the investment firm, shows that 73% of Americans actually feel optimistic about their finances, also up sharply this year, and that they plan to spend big this holiday season. That's according to the Mass Mutual Consumer Spending and Saving Index. Meanwhile, here's something you don't want this holiday season, COVID. It's on the rise yet again. Daily cases were over 100,000 on Thursday, with the seven-day average now 94,000. About two in five Americans still remain 
unvaccinated, according to Johns Hopkins University. Hey, I wanted to tell you about something new, my new West Wing Reports app. Download it on your phone. There's a button called What's on Your Mind. Just push it, talk, and send. I want your opinions, and I might use them in a future show. Please leave your name in town and keep it civil. Again, the app, West Wing Reports. The name Michael Flynn might ring a bell. He was the first former national security advisor to then-President Trump. Trump fired him after just three weeks on the job. Trump said Flynn lied to the FBI and then-Vice President Mike Pence about his dealings, Flynn's dealings, with the Russians. Flynn's been back in the news in recent days for calling for an America with just one religion. Here's what he said. And and they're talking about the United States of America. Talking about the United States of America, because when Matthew mentioned it in the Bible... He wasn't talking about the physical ground that he was on. He was talking about something in the distance. So if we are going to have one nation under God, which we must, we have to have one religion, one, one, one nation under God and one religion under God, right? All of us together. Now, obviously, the disconnect here is that America is based on freedom of religion, Christian, Jew, Islam, etc. The Constitution, the very First Amendment, forbids the government from promoting one religion over another, and it forbids the government from restricting individual religious choice. Flynn has always claimed to respect the Constitution. He's sworn to defend it on several occasions. Now, you can't call for a country with one religion while claiming to respect the Constitution. It's as simple as that. The Constitution and the presidency were the subjects of a recent chat I had with Barbara Perry of the University of Virginia's Miller Center. She's a scholar on both topics. She worries that the disrespect to the Constitution shown by Flynn's comments and more notably by the January 6th attack on the Capitol is a very worrisome sign of what could be on the horizon. Democrats and Republicans alike most of the time want to stay in power. And because Donald Trump has seized the power of the Republican Party, even those like Mitch McConnell, who, while he didn't vote to impeach him either time, uh, to convict him of impeachment either time, made his statement about January 6th and how that was wrong. But to this day now, Mitch McConnell will support Donald Trump in 2024. He's just said it most recently uh, in the mainstream media. So that's why Congress has been lost as a check. At least the court stood firm on the election. They sided with Donald Trump on occasion, like with the, the travel ban. Uh, and now that he has three people on the court of his own choosing, in part, in part because of the machinations of Mitch McConnell and the confirmation process in the Senate, uh, it's, you know, it, it remains to be seen if Donald Trump would be reelected in 2024, how a very conservative court um, would would deal with him. I, I, I fear this. And I another of my areas of specialty is the Supreme Court and constitutional law. And I have never felt uh, I thought Bush, Bush v. Gore was bad enough, but I've never felt so uh, at loose ends about having faith in our constitutional system uh, or in the three branches of government. 
what also disturbs me is what we're seeing among the states uh, in terms of uh, voter suppression laws that are being passed in these Republican states. Um, that is very concerning as well. And not just uh, suppression laws, but also uh, putting in place uh, mechanisms by which uh, theoretically, based on what I'm reading, at least the ability to simply uh, decide for themselves who won that state, regardless of what the vote was. Again, uh, this is the law and order party here. I don't think so. <laughs> well, they they point out uh, that the state legislatures get to determine the electoral college makeup of their group of electors in the college. And while that may be true and used to be more true before the popular vote had more meaning within the electoral college system, that is that eventually uh, the approach to determining how the slate of electors in each state would vote has come to be based on the popular vote in each state. But when they cannot manipulate that, as Donald Trump was trying to do in Georgia, calling up the Secretary of State uh, and saying, you need to find this number, you know, 11,000 plus votes. He had the exact number of votes that he needed to overcome the Biden victory that had been certified by the Secretary of State, had been certified by Georgia and was on its way to being certified on January the 6th, and thank goodness it ultimately was, by the Congress. So yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, again, though, when, when law and order is uttered by a Donald Trump figure or a Richard Nixon figure, uh, it's not meant to mean generically what we know it to mean. That should be at the very top, starting with following the constitutional law, then following the statutory laws, and for, you know, frankly, following the precedents under those constitutional interpretations and laws. So when you hear a candidate or a sitting president talk about law and order, watch out. Yeah, because you've, you've probably got on your hands a Richard Nixon, a Donald Trump, let us say a George Wallace, another even more recent demagogue, uh, you know, particularly in the racial area. In 2020, you'll recall that a swing of about 43,000 votes in a handful of states would have meant re-election for President Trump. Perry says that between voter suppression laws and action taken by Republican legislatures to have a say in who wins a vote could easily put Trump over the top in 2024, should he choose to run, and it certainly looks like he will. I'll open up the History Vault in just a second. First, though, let's hear about another Evergreen podcast that I know you'll enjoy. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. 
Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Welcome back. Let's open up the West Wing Report's archives now and take a look at what made history this week in the past. 1863, arguably the greatest of all presidential speeches, also one of the shortest, Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. It was only 272 words, took less than three minutes to deliver, but those words have echoed across time ever since. Lincoln described America as a nation, quote, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, unquote. He said the Civil War was a test that would determine whether such a nation could endure, and he ended by looking out over the battlefield at Gettysburg and paying tribute to the sacrifices made by Union soldiers in defense of those principles. We resolve, he said, quote, that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Now fast forward 110 years. Let me just say this. I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes. But in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Richard Nixon at a November 1973 news conference in which he denied any involvement in the Watergate cover-up. He also denied profiting off the presidency. He resigned, of course, nine months later. But no American should have to drive out of town to breathe clean air. And every city in America should have clean air. And with this legislation, I firmly believe we will. 1990, George H.W. Bush signed the Clean Air Act aimed at reducing acid rain and smog, as well as banning the use of leaded gas in cars by the end of 1995. Both the House and Senate overwhelmingly passed bills that contained the bulk of Bush's proposals, overwhelming bipartisan support. Imagine that, a time when Republicans and Democrats, both parties, work together to get things done in a civil and decent manner. Want more history? Check out my books on Amazon. I'll sign them for you, too. Just shoot me an email, pbrandis at evergreenpodcasts.com. And need a speaker for your event? I do that, too. Current events, economics, analysis, history. I connect the dots, and I would love to hear from you. I like to end each week with a quote, something you might find thoughtful. This week it's from Andrew Jackson, our seventh president. He said, quote, It is to be regretted that the rich and powerful too often bend the acts of government to their own selfish purposes, unquote. It seems that some things never change. 
Well, that's all for this week. Again, download my app, West Wing Reports, available everywhere, and send me an audio comment. West Wing Reports is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to C-SPAN for the audio clips. Our producer, sound designer, and engineer, Noah Fouts. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. Thanks so much for joining us. No show next week. Have a happy Thanksgiving. I'll see you in two weeks. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.